started Nehemiah chapter 3. I'll try it again. You're making it... Yeah. Mic check. Let me pray and get us ready for this morning. Uh, you may be seated. You'll see. I will not read through the passage this morning. It's a long passage with a lot of, uh, of names uh, that we'll probably be here until Christmas if I try to sit here and figure them all out. Uh, so we'll pray and get started. God, I'm so grateful uh, that this morning, we started off this morning talking about your holiness. You are holy, righteous, great God. I'm so grateful for that this morning. I'm so grateful for the reminder of that this morning. God, we do pray for all the churches in our area that even this morning that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to both the saved and the unsaved. I pray that you would use each expression, um, whether it's just down the street at uh, Jerusalem Presbyterian Church to World Outreach to uh, Lighthouse Church to all the churches here uh, in this city that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for their pastors. I pray for their people that God, through your Holy Spirit, you would redeem lost people. I pray for that for us this morning. As we come to your word, I pray that you would use it to transform our lives, to renew us, to make us holy, to make us new. God, I pray for the believer this morning, they'd leave encouraged. God, I pray for those who are far from you this morning, the unbeliever, that this message this morning, that God, through the only the way that you can, you would draw all men to yourself. God, I pray that you'd be glorified above all things, anything that would be said in this place or sung in this place, that you would be glorified. So God, I pray that you're with us this morning. Take us on this journey to, through Nehemiah chapter 3 and reveal to us that you want to use all of your people to redeem the world. I pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. We're in Nehemiah chapter 3. If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we started. This is our uh, fourth week in Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah has been chosen by God to rebuild the walls. We'll get there in a, in a minute. And we've titled this series, uh, The God Who Builds. So often we can come to Nehemiah, and there's been many, many books written on Nehemiah, and they focus on Nehemiah's organizational skills. They focus on Nehemiah being a great leader. They focus on Nehemiah being the great organizer, the great administrator. Though Nehemiah was all those things, this book is not about Nehemiah. I said that last week. I'll say it again. This book has, has very little to do with Nehemiah, but it has everything to do with the greatness of who God is. It's the God who builds. It's not Nehemiah who builds. Nehemiah was just a servant of the Lord to do what God purposed him to do. We see this throughout Scripture that every page of the Bible has to do with one thing. Nehemiah is not the hero of this story. Nehemiah is not, uh, uh, Joseph is not the hero in Joseph's story. Paul is not the hero through the epistles. Moses was not the hero. Noah was not the hero. Daniel was not the hero. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were not the heroes of the story. Though they're in the story, all those lives are pointed back to the hero. We see that it starts back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. He says this, this is right after the fall. That God the Father will introduce right off the bat the hero of the rest of the stories of the Bible. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the servant. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, Jesus, shall bruise your head, shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning of the Bible, through all the Bible, every story on every page is going to point back 
to the hero of the story. There's a great book. It's a children's book, actually. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you have a chance, go grab that book. I don't care if you're 10 years old or 110 years old. All of us in here need to read that, that Bible. Because every story in that Bible is going to point back to the hero of the story. And we've got to remember that. Because so often we can look at our own lives and think we're the hero of the story. We're not the hero of the story. I said it yesterday at the wedding, uh, at the very beginning. As much as Tyler and Shelby were on display in front of all those people and in that heat, their ultimate goal that day was not about themselves and about their marriage. Their ultimate goal, having many sessions with them, was that people would see the glory of God through their marriage. And so God was on display at that marriage yesterday, way more than Tyler, way more than Shelby. Not because I said anything, not because they were getting married. That's just how God is. God wants to use all things to point back to one thing, himself. I'm so grateful that we have a selfish God. He is a selfish God because he wants everything that he does to point back to what John's saying to us over and over this morning, his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his peace, his justice, that all things would point back to him. And so here in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3, he's going to use it again to show us who the hero is. You see, this morning, the point of this whole thing, Nehemiah chapter 3, so often people, the commentaries get to Nehemiah chapter 3, and many people just glance over it. Because all it looks like on the front end is just a bunch of names that we can't say over and over and over and over again. And I, I don't want to read all those names to you. You'll get bored and I'll butcher the names. But every story in this story is pointing back to one person, the person of God himself. The God has taken Nehemiah chapter 3 that even in my Bible, I highlight a lot, in my own Bible, my study Bible, there is not one thing highlighted in this Bible until I began to study it this week. And it has to do with the God who builds. And I thought to myself, what does that mean? We've talked about this several weeks, the God who builds. Here's the definition that we're going to play off of today. The God who builds. God remembers and is acting upon His promises to build his kingdom by building lives, families, churches, and communities and nations for his own glory. The God who builds is building all things for one purpose and one purpose only. That's for the renown and the glory of God. That God wants to build in your life one purpose, the glory of God. That God wants in your family one purpose, the glory of God. That God wants one purpose in the place you work, the glory of God. That God wants one purpose in your neighborhood, the glory of God. That above all, God wants in this nation the glory of God. We've fallen a long way from that, right? Well, that's still what God wants to do. And now God is going to show us how he wants to accomplish that. He's going to accomplish his glory through his people. Don't miss that. God wants to accomplish his glory through his people. We've seen that throughout the whole Testament. That God at the beginning of creation said, I'm going to create a nation for my glory. That's what the Israel, that's what, they weren't because they were special, they weren't because they were superior than all other, no, it's because God's sovereignty, what we talked about last week, God's sovereignty chose this people for the glory of God. And over and over and over we see God's holy people, the Israel, it's God's chosen people for one purpose, that's to point back to God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's love, God's righteousness to a lost and dying world. And what do we see? And each of those times throughout the Old Testament was God's faithfulness, but it also showed us the faithlessness of God's people. 
And so in the faithlessness of God's people, what does God do? God chastises them. God disciplines them. And so we see that over and over and over. Three, way, three major th- times we see that in the history of Israel is this. In, ni- in 1722, the Assyrians came and conquered them because of their rebellion. That God disciplined them, sent the Assyrians to conquer them. We see it in 589. The Babylonians conquered them. That they took all these people into exile. We see it again. This is the period of time we're in now. 535 B.C. The Persians have now conquered them. They've taken God's people, God's holy people, God's chosen people, and taken them, put into exile. And each time, each of these three places, we see that God will send a man to redeem his people. You see, each story of God's people being conquered, God sends a redeemer. Now, you and I might think on the front hand, well, okay, of course, he's going to send a redeemer. This ultimately goes back to the great redeemer, Jesus Christ. Each of these stories point to, hey, there is going to be the ultimate redeemer to come and restore his people. That's Jesus Christ himself. That you and I are just as faithless as the Israelites, and we need a great redeemer. And so we saw uh, the first man, uh, Zerubbabel, led God's people back to himself. Uh, The next, in the Babylonians, God used Ezra to lead God's people back to himself. Now here in the story, God is going to use Nehemiah to lead God's people back back to himself through the building of the walls. You've got to remember, Nehemiah wasn't born in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah had never seen Jerusalem until we talked about last week when he crests the hill. He sees the brokenness of the city. But yet God had placed something in Nehemiah. And it wasn't a heart for Nehemiah's people. It was a heart for God. And God used that, that broken heart to redeem his people. That God placed a brokenness for the people of God in Nehemiah that God would use to redeem his people the same way that he did with Christ Jesus. You remember that Jesus himself. I, I wonder, I wonder if it was that same hill that Nehemiah crested that when Jesus went on top of that hill and he overlooked Jerusalem and he began to weep for Jerusalem. Maybe it was the same hill that Nehemiah had crested. But it was the same heart. It was the same heart. A broken heart for lost people. We've been talking about this over and over through the weeks here in Nehemiah and we'll continue for the next uh, 11 weeks talking about this idea that we must have the heart of God for the brokenness that's around us. And I'd say this to us. It must start in our own lives. You see, we can come to this city and we can look at the brokenness all around us and we can look at the broken walls all around us. God is not concerned about the broken walls, literally. He's concerned about the broken spiritual walls. And it's not about what's out there, it's about what's in here first. God is more concerned about what's going on in you than he is concerned about what he's going to do through you. Amen? And so this morning, we got to look at this. We've got to examine our own spiritual walls. And you may say, what what are our spiritual walls? The first place is this. Husbands and wives, it's your marriage. It is your marriage. We must examine our marriages to see if, man, is there any brokenness in the wall of my marriage? Because if there is, there needs to be rebuilding that happens. The second one is this, our children. Do we look at our children? Maybe our children are wayward from us. Does that break our hearts? Or do we just go back to the the verse that says this? Oh, um, 
uh, the, the verse about disciplining your kids and bringing your kids upright in the Lord and they'll never depart from Him. We just rest on that. But we don't rest on the brokenness that's inside of us. Yes, we can, we can land our promises on God's Word, but there has to be a brokenness that flows out of that promise. Students, young people, the way that you interact in school is important. Everything that we do has to be for the glory of God. And so even for me, the great conviction for me, I wish someone had taught me this in high school, that even the way that I study and I pay attention in the classroom reflected back to the glory of God. The way that I date reflects back to the glory of God. The way that I live in my life, in my, the place that God has for me in my job, reflects back to the glory of God. Is all that I'm doing a constant reminder that God has placed me where God has placed me for one purpose and one person, purpose alone, the glory and the renown of God. So wherever you work, God has placed you the same way that God placed Nehemiah as a cupbearer to the king. God's placed you where you're at in your marriage. God's placed you there. So many times I, I work with marriages all day, every day. And, and some of the times some people say things and I, my inner self wants to say something, uh, but, you know, bound by the state, I can't say it. But the, the thing that baffles me is that they come in and say, I just think God wants me to have a divorce. Well, I, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I think it's okay. To, I get this one. I think it's okay. They're alcoholics. I think it's okay to have one beer. No, that'd probably kill you. And they just, the justification of their spiritual walls that are broken. And so for us, it matters how we live our lives. It really matters how we live our lives. It's the same way we're going to get in this passage. It mattered how these builders lived their life. It mattered. It mattered because if you remember uh, back in our series through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we got to chapter 5, that the way we live will thin demonstrate to a lost world that we're the salt and light of the world. Your marriage matters to the lostness of this world. Like, people are looking at our lives, determining if, if what we say is true, and if it's true, maybe, just maybe, that will give them an inspiration to come to know Christ. But my fear is that we as the church, our lives look no different. That we in the church, we look no different than the world, except we say we know Jesus. Here's what's heartbreaking to me about marriages. There's a higher divorce rate amongst Christians than unbelievers. It's 32, it's 52% among unbelievers, and it's about 51% amongst, uh, uh, 51% amongst uh, unbelievers, 52% amongst believers. That the Christian marriage isn't as sacred to believers as it is unbelievers. That's baffling to me. It matters how we live our life. It matters how we live. We are called to be the salt and light of the world. You see, this is what Nehemiah has been preparing us for to say to us. It really does matter. And here in Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah is going to show us that it does matter. And part of it mattering is that God wants to use all of God's people to redeem the world. And he's going to use us. Now let's read Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. I'll skip to 13 and 14, then verses 28 through 30. Then Elishabib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate, underlined the sheep gate. I'll get back to that in a minute. 
They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred. As far as the Tower of Hanel. The next to him, I'll underline that in your Bible, next to him, you'll see that throughout this passage. The men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Ire, built. The son of Heshinah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set the doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, uh, Mermoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Zechazal, re repaired. And next to him, Mesuzela, the son of... I told you, these names are, are ridiculous. I think God did it to, to make fun of us because he knew uh, for centuries we were trying to read these names as Americans. I think he was laughing at us as Americans. And next to him, it goes on and on and on to talk about all these people. That here's, here's a man, and right next to him was a man, and right next to him was a man, and right, right, over 40 different groups of people worked on this wall. Let's turn to 13 and 14. Hanan, the inhabitants of Zenah, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Chickajah, uh, you, you just got to say it with confidence, and you wouldn't know. If I just wouldn't stutter through it and just said it with confidence, you would have no idea if they were right or wrong. That's how you're supposed to read names of the Bible. Fake it, fake it till you make it. Uh, that's the only place you're supposed to fake it till you make it, just reading names. The, the ruler of the district of Beth Hethor repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set the, the doors and its bolts and its bars. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite of its own house. Underline that in your Bible, his own house. And after him, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired to the opposite side of his house. Underline that in your Bible. And on and on it goes about all these men who sat beside each other to rebuild the walls. I believe that God uses this passage more than maybe any other passage in the Bible to show us a few things. That God has a desire to use God's people to accomplish His mission. We see over and over and over and over and over again God using people for His mission. I also believe this, and this is the sad part for me. I think so many times we can read, come to the Bible and read the Bible and think, man, God only chooses the A-team. And I don't mean like Mr. T, that A-team. I mean that God only chooses the best of the best of the best. And so then we can sit back and say, man, I'm not the best of the best of the best. And God only wants to use the best of the best of the best. I just don't believe that. I don't believe God has lined up people. Uh, this is the most traumatic thing in my life, I think. I don't know if you remember this, but it's being picked for sports, kickball, baseball. I was always the kid that was picked dead last. Like, oh, well, we better pick him. Okay, I'm the only one in the room. All right, we're in here with a bunch of Michael Jordans, a bunch of athletes. But that was the most, one of the most terrifying things. And I think for us, so often we think that's how God chooses people. Like, here's this line of people, and he's going down. And he's like, nah, you don't cut it, you don't cut it. Oh, you're 6'6", six, six, you cut it. Oh, you're 4'4", four, four, you, you don't cut it. And we, looked at, we believe that God has only chooses the best of the best of the best. But if you go through this passage of Scripture over and over and over and over again, you will see that God doesn't choose the best of the best of the best. I believe this is true for us. Let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 
We'll skip down to verse 17 after that. This is what Paul says. How we know that God doesn't choose the best of the best of the best. He says this in chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. The we there, underline that in your Bible, is the believer. That God chose the believer, we. If you know Christ, you are part of the we. That Christ says through Paul that we are his workmanship. What that word means is that you are the best of the best. That word workmanship has this idea that like a, a painting a mural in front of your fireplace. That God would put his best on display. And so what Paul is saying that we are his workmanship. We are the best of the best of the best. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. You were created for good works. We'll get to that in a minute. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The them is the good works. And so God is saying through Paul here, He chose you. You are the best of the best for good works. Now walk in the good works. And so what is the good works? It's to be on mission with God. And God's mission has never changed. God's mission will never change. The good works is that you and I would be redeemed by God to go after those who are lost and are far from God. That God wants to use you to redeem lost people. Think about that. That ought to blow all of our brains and our hearts. That God would choose to use us sinful people in his redemptive work to a lost world. He says this in verse 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you. You who are far off. And peace to those who are near. For through him we both, those who are far off and those who are near, have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. We just talked about that through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Citizens with what? The saints and the members of the household of God. He's saying in this passage that he took you and I that were far from the Lord, chose us to be his workmanship, placed us in his house right next to the greatest saints. That there's now no distinction between you and the greatest saints. As members of the household of God, that is the church. And what did he do? He built on what? The foundations of the apostles, the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the what? The cornerstone. Jesus is the one that holds it all together. The church, it all is going to fall onto Jesus. That's the cornerstone. You take the cornerstone out of any house, the whole house falls to, to pieces. And so he's saying, I'm building a church on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus, but I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you to build upon what I already have established as Christ Jesus. 21, in whom what the whole structure of the church is being joined together, or held together, growing into what a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Jesus, you also are being built together as a unit that we in here, the church, are now being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, hey, there was once a temple in the Old, the Old Testament, but now you are the temple individually, and you are the temple collectively where the Spirit of God wants to, to, to dwell and to grow. And so we can come to this passage and think to ourselves, man, God only chooses the best of the best. That is not true. God chose you. God chose you. 
He could have chosen anyone, and yet God chose you. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, I, I just don't have what it takes. Well, I this, I thought, okay, you don't have what it takes. I'll say it again. You don't have what it takes. You do not have what it takes to accomplish the mission of God. You don't. I don't care how great of an organizer you are. I don't care how great of a musician you are. I don't great, care how great of a parent you are. You fill in the blank. I don't have, care how great you are. You do not have enough to accomplish the mission of God because if you had enough to accomplish the mission of God, you wouldn't need God. And so what God is saying, yes, I chose you, and yes, you don't have what it takes, but I'm going to give you what it takes. You have what we in the world calls the it factor. You've ever heard that factor? Man, that guy just has it. He's got the it factor. You know, you, you, Jared, he's got the it factor. When you put him on this piano, he got the it factor. You bring Keith up, put a microphone in his hand, he got the it factor. When it comes to talents. But if we just rely solely on our talents, we do not have enough to accomplish the mission of God. These men did not have enough to accomplish the mission of God. Nehemiah himself, as great of an organizer, leader he was, he did not have enough. Even Nehemiah himself said that. He goes back, go back to uh, 1 and 2. He says, no, the great hand of my Lord was on me. And so you don't, I don't have what it takes. But here's what he tells us. Flip over if you're still in Ephesians chapter 3. If you're a believer here, you have what it takes. This is this Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we have ever asked or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. You have what it takes because you're a believer. If you're a believer, you have the greatest gift that's ever been given to you. That's the Holy Spirit. You see, when you and I begin to believe that we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we can do amazing things because it won't be in us. It will be our dependence on the Lord. That's what these men over and over and the women in this chapter, chapter 3, got. They understood. They didn't have what it takes, but they believed in the God who did. And they relied on Him over and over and over and over again. Here's the deal. And the deal for us in chapter 3. Here's what God is saying to us. I love this quote. It's from my buddy, my mentor, Orlando Cabrera. He says this, It's not about you that you are able, but that you are available. God does not, he does not need to use you. He used a donkey to talk to someone. If he used a donkey, he can use you and me. All that God is saying to us, I don't care how able you are, I care about how available you are. What availability means how obedient you are, how willing you are, how trusting you are, how open to you are that God would use you, that you would say yes before you knew the mission. But here's the beauty. He's already told you the mission. The mission is that God would use you to redeem people. And now he's saying, are you available for me to use you? Not if you're able. Moses could not talk a lick. And yet God used him to deliver his people. Over and over and over again, we don't see able people, 
we see available people through Scripture. Even Paul himself, we can read Paul, but there's a lot about Paul that if you and I on the outside were to look at Paul, we'd be like, no way, he ain't part of the A-team. But yet God chose him. And in choosing him, all that Paul said was, yes, Lord, I'm available. I'm available. And here in this story of Nehemiah, there are all kinds of people that were available. Look at verse 8. He says these are the people he used. The goldsmiths, the blacksmiths, the masons, the construction workers. Like all those people, I'm like, yeah, I'd use that. If I'm going to do a, a rebuilding the wall, I'm going to use a, a, a mason. He's going to know how to put bricks together. I'm going to use a goldsmith. He knows how to work with his hands. I'm going to use a blacksmith. He knows how to do stuff with iron. But look who else it said he used. The perfumers. What Now what? Really, God? You're going to use the dude at Macy's that's spraying me when I walk in to... Uh, you're going to use that dude? Really? Now, I'm not dogging those people because I used to do that, and it was annoying. So, I, yeah, y'all can laugh at me. That's all right. Yeah, I did perfume for a while. Got to pay the bills. And so I would look and say, man, I would use the goldsmith. I use the blacksmith. I use the mason. But you guys over there, I'm not using you. If all you're going to do is come out with your cologne and perfume and spray it on everyone. Yet they, all they said was, okay, Lord. Okay. And so you and I could sit here today and say, well, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, I'm not educated in the Word, I'm not this, I'm not that. And God is saying, but are you available? Are you available this morning? You see, the perfumers were available. We can laugh at them all we want, but they came to God and said, yes, God, however you want to use me, I'll be used. And so this morning, in closing, we'll look at two kinds of people. Because all of it can be boiled down to these two kinds of people. All of us in this room will be this morning these two kinds of people. There's no way around it. There's no way out of these two kinds of people that God wants to use. The first is this, that we see in this, in, in this story. Those who do not engage with God's mission. Do you want that to be said about you? We see that in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, And next to him were the Tikkites who, who were repairing, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. You see, there was this group of people, and this group of people were serving the Lord, and they were rebuilding the wall, but then they had these other people that took two steps back and were judging the people for stooping down. And they said, there's no way that I'm stooping down to do the dirty work. There's no way. And so the question I have for myself and for us this morning is this. Where in my prideful life am I unwilling to serve the Lord? You see, here's the nobles, here's the highest of the high, and these guys said, no, nah, I ain't going to do that. Basically what they were saying in their pride was, I'm too good for that. And I asked myself that question, God, what am I unwilling to do to serve you? Man, I'm willing to do these things. I'm willing to preach, I'm willing to do funerals, I'm willing to do weddings, I'm willing to go meet with people, but man, God, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. I don't know. I, that one, I don't know, God. And here's the deal. 
We need all of God's people to be on mission. I don't care if you're good at it or not. Are you and am I available? Would it be true for me if they came to me and said, Todd, we don't have anyone in the nursery this week. We need you. Well, someone else can fill in and preach. We need you to go change dirty diapers and get boogers flicked on you. Would I do it? Oh, man, I love my kids, but man, boogers, I can't deal with boogers. We call them biggers in our house because they're big. That's just what Tennyson called them, biggers. I just don't know about biggers and snot. Am I willing to do that? And God forbid you put me back with middle schoolers. I hope there's no middle schoolers. Man, I did that for four years, and that, that was whew, a journey of a lifetime. There's nothing worse than a middle school boy on a camping retreat. They don't know how to shower, or they choose not to shower. They stank straight up, I'm just going to say. And they don't know to wear perfume or cologne or deodorant or anything that makes them smell good. Am I willing to go back there to serve the Lord? If God said, Todd, I want you to go be a middle school pastor, would I do it again? I'd be like, oh, I don't know about that. But am I willing? Am I available? That's all that God wants. Am I available? That's all that God wants for you and for me. Are we available? Here's the deal. On July the 10th, this place, last year we had over 60 children on this side of the room, packed with people. Now you may say to yourself, I'm not good with kids. Me either. And I got two of them. But all that God is saying to us this morning is, are you available for VBS? Man, it's not that difficult to put juice in a cup and to put cookies in a a napkin. Maybe that's all you come to do. Maybe all you come to do is encourage the workers that are there. You don't have to deal with kids at all. Maybe it's to stay after and to clean up. Maybe it's to come beforehand and set up. I don't know what it is, but are you available to God this morning to serve Him on His mission to redeem people back to Christ? That is our mission at VBS. Our mission at VBS is not to come in here, play games, have John do some silly songs, and entertain kids. That is not our mission. Though we'll do all those things. Our mission is that God would open these doors and a floodgate of students come and fill this place to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. And we'll do extreme things to accomplish that mission, but we need a lot of people to fill that mission. And so this morning, are you available for VBS? Are you available for VBS? Which transitions us into the next kind of person. Those who will engage with God for His mission. Three things. It's a holy and God-glorifying mission. Look back at chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Look where it all starts and look at who it starts with. It says it starts with the priest and where do they start? They start at the sheep gate. Now you and I may come to it and think, well, it's the sheep gate. Okay, great. But if we were to look at a map, and we'll look at a map of the, 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 the wall of, uh, that's been broken down, the sheep gate is right in front of where? The temple. The most important thing that they could start with was at the temple of God. Because they knew that God dwelled in the temples. So their first priority was to be on mission with God, to bring glory and holiness to God, to protect the temple first and foremost. It all starts with God. Flip over to the very last verse, verse 32. And where does it end? 
and between the upper chamber of the corner of the sheep gate. It starts and ends with God being the center of all things. That is the mission of God. That everything we do will point back to what John's saying to us this morning, the holiness and the renown of God to glorify God in everything that we do. They could have started anywhere. They could have started anywhere on that two and a half mile wall. But where'd they start? Right in front of the temple to allow the people of God to have access to the temple of God first and foremost. That's amazing to me. It's not by happenstance that God in Nehemiah starts, goes all the way around the city, and ends back at the sheep gate at the temple of God. It's all about him. If we're going to be on mission with God, we must be on a mission that is holy and God-glorifying. That is the mission here at Powell's Chapel. Our mission is very simple. It's to know him and to make him known. We will glorify God by knowing him first and foremost and then making him known. It all starts with God here at Powell's Chapel and will all end with God. The next one is this. If we're going to be on mission with God, it must be a specific and selfless mission. Let's look at chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Remember, I told you earlier, we'll look at this in a, in a moment again. Well, we'll look at it now. That where does it start? That they had a specific mission, their mission, they each went in front of their own house. Like they built the wall that was right in front of their house. And then the other thing we see, it was a selfish mission. Uh, verse 13. And they rebuilt and set the doors, its bolts, its bars, and repairs a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. They worked on the dung gate. Now you may be thinking, what? That is where all, uh, let's see how I put this. Well, you know what I'm trying to say. That's where it all left, the city. It's through the gun gate. And God had called some people to act selfish, selflessly to repair that gate. Now, if God had said, Todd, I want you to go and I want you to clean up the bathroom, I'd be like, man, I don't know about all that. Like, you ever been into a porta potty? It's about 5,000 times worse than that. Have you ever been overseas somewhere and you see all, like, in the streets of uh, the Dominican Republic, India, all the places outside of the U.S. that I've been have a, like the dung channel is what I call it. It's just where it all flows out of the city. It is gross. And yet God had called people to work on that part of the gate. And we don't see them complaining. They said, okay, God. Okay. You see, to be on mission of God will cost you something. Let me say that again. To be on mission with God is going to cost you and I something. I don't know what it's going to cost. But there's no guarantee that if you be on mission with God, that it's a, a get-rich-quick scheme. This is not what we're talking about. That's where my homeboy with, with the mullet out in Houston has it all wrong. There's no such thing as prosperity in the gospel. Prosperity in the gospel happens after this lifetime, not within this lifetime. Now, I'm not saying you won't be prosperous, but the end goal is not that you come to be with Jesus so that you prosper your best life now. I'll tell you what, if this is my best life now, uh, this is horrible. Like, I've signed up for the wrong thing. Like, coming to know Christ has not been the best life possible. 
It hadn't been the funnest life possible. It hadn't been the easiest life possible. It hadn't been the simplest life possible. It has not been my best life possible. Just being honest with you. Like before I knew Christ, that was the best life possible. I could do whatever I want, whenever I wanted, however I wanted, and had no consequences for it that I knew of. I'll never forget one of the first times I ever sat down with Buddy. He said, man, sin is beautiful. Amen to that. Amen to that. But when you come and you get on mission with God, it's going to cost you something. Matter of fact, he says it this way, it's going to cost you everything to be on mission with him. And are we willing, however the metaphor in your life, are you and I willing to work on the done gate? Or is that part of the process of like, mm, I ain't doing that one. The next thing we see is this. It must be a collective and unifying mission. God wants to use all of God's people to redeem the world. You must look to your right this morning. You must look to your left. You must look in front of you and behind you. Yes, God wants to use those people and you to redeem the world. Here's the saddest part. Here's one of the saddest parts for me as a pastor. How many churches have split because they weren't unified on a mission? I will say it over and over and over again from this pulpit. As the people of God, we must make sacrifices to remain on mission with God. And what I mean by that is we must let go of our preferences to be on mission with God. At the end of the day, all that matters here at Powell's Chapel is that we know Him and we make Him known. That's all that matters. And so that means for me, as a younger guy, I'm going to have to give up some of my preferences to be on mission with God here at Powell's Chapel. And for you, if you're here, there's going to be some things you're going to have to let go of to be on mission with God. Because getting God's Word out and knowing God is more important than anything else. Okay, I'll probably get fired for this one for sure. You're going to get to heaven. Oh, gosh. You're going to get to heaven, and you're going to sing songs that you had no idea what you're singing. They are going to be in Aramaic. They're going to be in Jewish. They're going to be in Hebrew. There's going to be all kinds of songs that you have no idea what you're singing, and there's going to be music and instruments that you have no idea what they're playing. How come? Because there's people of God this morning that are worshiping in ways that you and I would choose never to worship. But yeah, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to worship with the assembly. It's not like, oh, there's the American church over there. Oh, there's the Jewish church over there. Oh, there's the African church over there. No, it's going to be, we're all going to come together and be in God's house and God's presence worshiping a holy God. And so we better today, now, begin to practice how it's going to be for the rest of your life. Like, there's not going to be an American heaven. There's not going to be a palace chapel in heaven. There's not going to be a South in heaven. There's not going to be an America in heaven. It's going to be the redeemed people of God worshiping what we sang about already, the holiness of God. And that's how we stay on mission with God and we stay unified because we put our preferences last and put the holiness of God first. You see, every church that's ever split is because they split over preferences. Now, there's been some churches that have split theologically, but most churches split due to preference. My prayer is that we here at Powell's Chapel 
would never be a church based on our preferences, but it would be based on our convictions, the same way that these men were so convicted to the core to rebuild the wall so that they would have a place to go and worship. That was the whole purpose to rebuild the wall, is that they could go and worship and in peace and in harmony and with safety. That is the whole reason they went on mission with God to rebuild the wall. And so this morning, I ask you to consider these three things. First is this. Which kind of person are you? There's only two this morning. One that is not engaged with God's mission or one that is engaged with God's mission. The second one of this is what is the need that you need to step forward in your personal mission that God has for you? What is it that God is calling to you today? We're in a great season here at Powell's Chapel. We've got VBS in a few weeks. We're right in the middle of, uh, even in our bulletin today, it says there's a need for a, second, a first through second grade Sunday school. There are plenty of places in this church to serve the Lord. And maybe your next step in serving the Lord and being on mission with the Lord is saying, I'm available. I'm available, God. I'm just available. If that's you this morning, come see me. We want to plug you in to be on mission here at Powell's Chapel to reach the lost all around us. And again, I won't say it enough. We need all of God's people to participate in the mission of God to reach all of God's people. The last thing is this. What does it look like for you to draw your family into the mission of God? What would that look like? God's called us to be on mission the same way that he has called these men and these women here in chapter 3 to be on mission to rebuild a wall. He's calling us as Powell's Chapel to rebuild our walls in our life and therefore rebuild the walls around this city so that there'd be a place that people would come and worship a holy, holy God. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that we would stay on mission with you, that you would continue to unify us as a body to be on mission. God, you say over and over in your word, well, the way that you love one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. That is living on mission and living with unity. So God, I pray for us here at Powell's Chapel. I pray for the weeks to come at VBS, that God, uh, this place will be full of volunteers to reach lost people. That God, that as we move forward here at Powell's Chapel, that, that there would be so many people wanting to serve and be on mission with you that we have to turn people away from wanting to serve in certain places. God, the mission is so clear here at Powell's Chapel, to know you and to make you known. I pray that everything that we do, we'd stay on that mission, a, a God-glorifying mission, a God-honoring mission, a mission that's full of sacrifices. And so this morning as we sit, as we close, God, I ask this question. Is there any place in my life that I'm unwilling to be available to for your service? As John plays this last song, as you sing with him, uh, just let that question ruminate in your brain and your heart. 